Well, welcome back to the When I Heard This podcast. My name is Nate Robinsoff, and I'm here with Joseph Tillman. How are you, Joseph? I'm doing great today, man. Nailed it. Um, today, we are talking about uh, money. We are. Being the root of all evil, as people would call it. I don't know if you want to say that quite yet, but yeah, we're going to talk about money. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so today's episode is going to be called Why the Church Need My Money. <laughs> right, this is going to be an awesome topic. All right, cool. On I'm on my quest to get Joseph fired. <laughs> We're only on episode four. I don't move too fast. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about money as it relates to the church, and sure. and is there is there a better way to set this up before we ask the before we get into the into the stuff? No, I mean I think what you're getting to is money is a touchy subject for anyone right right on any level and so you put that with church and i think individuals yeah individuals have all kind of reactions to that right okay so first question joseph which is like eight questions um (laughs) what are tithes the church asks for to give tithes they Mm -hmm. send a little golden plates around so that I can put a check in there or the $2.38 that I have in my pocket that I I forgot to bring a check. So what are tithes? What are offerings? And what's the difference? Sure. So tithes have historically been understood as the giving of 10% of your income. This has traditionally been understood as going to one's local church. Okay. Offerings have historically been understood as giving anything over 10% of your income. So if tithe literally means 10, right? So at 10%. So tithing being 10% of your income, offerings being understood as giving anything over 10% of your income. And this has traditionally been understood as going to, to not only the local church, but also other ministries, nonprofits, or even to individuals. And I think that's the difference between the two, is okay. tithes typically find themselves within a local church. Offerings can be the local church, but also, again, going to other uh, ministries or nonprofits or even to individuals. Okay, so you said it was basically like church says, churches say, hey, uh, Nate, it's free to come, so you should come. Right. Or, you know, that's what one would say to one who is not Christian. Um, so how come when I get to church, uh-huh. there is now a plate in front of me? <laughs> yeah. So when when I was told it was free. Right. <laughs> well, it's still free. Free to come, Nate. <laughs> so you can still show up and not give anything. I I would hope that. So I'm speaking for pastors now. Mm-hmm. I would hope that we would communicate that to individuals that are members and regular attendees of the church. This is a time of giving for them, but that we're not imposing giving on just anyone who shows up on a random Sunday. So. 
pastors should not be asking for money unless you're an official member of the church? I'm saying that we need to be very clear that when we're asking for giving, that we're yeah, that we are doing it. We're doing it specifically for individuals that are members or regular attenders of our church. If individuals want to give, that's fine. You're not you know, going to say no, right? Not going to say no. So, <laughs> but that's not the intent. Okay. The intent is to give individuals that are a part of that local church, part of that local assembly, an opportunity to give to their local assembly. If I don't give, right? why do I personally uh-huh. feel like after all the times I've been asked to give money to church before in my life right? that I'm going to burn in hell if I don't? And why is that the issue among all the others that I have felt like in my life that I was going to hell for the most? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so in what way has the message of tithes and offerings been presented to you, Nate, in a way in which it made you feel that, man, if I do not give right now, I'm going to burn in hell? I've generally felt like I've heard more about that subject from church than any other individual subject the entire time that I ever went. Okay. So... That coupled with the all the other reasons <laughs> that that church made me feel like I was destined for hell. Okay. Why is that? Why would that be the most prominent? Yeah. You think? Well, again, I go back to what I said initially. Money is just a touchy subject initially, anyway, right? Okay, and so money is a touchy subject. But so all of us get a little. We, we can get a little sideways just when people start talking about money, okay? okay? And sensitive. Are you saying that you feel like I may have felt weird about it when I heard about it? Or that sure. people were felt weird about it when they were presenting that to me? Like pastors felt weird about it when they were asking for it or whatever? Yeah, I, I think you, I, I, it's probably a combination of both. Okay. I, I think that when we hear, right, I'm sitting out in the congregation and a pastor starts talking to me about giving, mm. I might feel weird about that. Mm. Right. What if I'm really tight? What if I don't feel like I've got an extra dime to give? Right. But now I feel like, Oh man, I really need to give something. Mm. Right. And I think sometimes pastors can feel odd and awkward about it because they know that there's people out there that are that tight. Right. And so I think it can go both ways. But I do think that sometimes we feel that way. And probably and you probably have heard it so much because it's one of the things that is actively happening every single time you go to church on a Sunday morning. Right. Right. So offering is going like offering plates are going to be passed mm. or they'll be, you know, the they'll throw up there on the screen, mm. you know, here's here's four ways to give and you know, you can mm. use the app and you can use the online you know, website and da da da. And so I think that because it's talked about every week, that's why it mm. feels like it's always being discussed mm-hmm. where the sermon titles change from week to week. Right. So I might be talking about the love of God one week, the identity in Christ another week, um, the story of Jonah one week and, but now the 
what's becoming regular is every week some mention mm-hmm. of money because, again, of the collecting of tithes and offerings. So I feel like I hear you, but I have been to churches where they do communion every week. Yeah. And it was like, hey, communion's in the back. You can go grab one if you want. Mm. And collection plate was its own part of the service instead uh, of like the other way around. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And I think if that's the case, that's uh, that's that's an indictment on the church, too. Okay. Yeah. And I think sometimes we just perceive it that way. But then when you're talking about the way that you are like, hey, we're going to do communion every week. Just go grab it when you want. We're not going to make a big deal about it. Oh, but we're going to almost stop the service to make sure you're aware that yeah. we are going to take up tithes and offerings right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I can. Under, I, I mean, I clearly see where you're coming from. Okay. Yeah. So I'm okay to ask this question. Absolutely. And feel like this a little bit. Sure. Okay. Uh, next question. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in the Bible that that is like commanding me to give money? Okay. So... Is there anything in the Bible that says that that is commanding you to give money? Right. Right. Because um, there's ten commandments, but none of them are give any money. Right. <laughs> okay. So, yes. Okay. In not in the sense of. All right. Let me kind of kind of give just the biblical narrative of giving real yes. quick. Yeah. Let's do I that. think that may help. Okay. All right. So you just mentioned the Ten Commandments, okay? Okay. So the Ten Commandments are part of what is known as the Mosaic Law, or the law that's given to Moses after he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay. Okay? And so... Leviticus and Numbers. That's that? Exodus. Yeah, and Exodus. Okay. Yeah. So basically, your second through fifth books... Mm-hmm. Involve the the Israelite people before they go into the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so if I back that up though, before the Mosaic Law is given. Okay, so if I go back to Genesis in Genesis chapter fourteen, we see Abram giving to a king and a priest named Melchizedek, and we see him giving ten percent. Okay, and so. It doesn't explain why he gives 10% or like how he knew to give 10%. It just says this is what he gave was 10%. And so that's like the first time we begin to see this idea of a giving of a 10% or a giving of a tithe. Okay. Now that principle is there. And then what happens with the Mosaic law is it becomes codified. So you've got a principle of giving 10%. And so it all of a sudden is now made law by the law that's given to Moses by the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so there's the what we most often refer to as the giving of 10% to the Levites. So we see that in Numbers 18. But there's actually three different offerings being asked of the people of Israel in the law. So giving of 10% to the Levites, giving 10% for the feast, the festivals, that the, the, the annual feast festivals that the Israelites had. And we see that in Deuteronomy 14. 
And then there's another percentage that's being asked to be given to the poor every three years. That's also in Deuteronomy 18. So actually, it's a lot more than 10% even. Okay? okay. But in the, so that's what we see in the law. Now, after the law is what we want to talk about because that's what the churches should be interested in. New Testament. This is New Testament. Okay. Okay? So this is no longer under the law to give tithes. Mm -hmm. All right. So the way that the, the most simplistic way that I know to explain this is that when Christ comes, the Mosaic law is done away with. Okay. Okay. And so we're no longer being held up under that law. Mm-hmm. And so so that law is no longer enforcing tithes. All right? So what we can find is a biblical principle of the tithes that we see in the Old Testament, the giving of the first fruits, which was related to the tithes. And when I look at the New Testament, what I believe you find most often is the idea of this willful, cheerful, generous giving. Okay? And so, like, the church is born, and there's just this giving that automatically begins to happen from the church. So, in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit has just come down, and 3,000 people have gotten saved. They begin devoting themselves to the apostles teaching into prayer and to fellowship, breaking of the bread. And then after that, what we see is that in verse 44, chapter 2, it says, Now all believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And what we begin to see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is that the believers in the church are actually coming and giving freely, just giving to the church leaders for that money to be distributed to anyone that has needs within the within the church family. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Second Corinthians nine is probably the clearest account of the way in which we can begin to understand giving within a New New Testament principle, Mm -hmm. or New Testament understanding. And so in in chapter 9, beginning in verse 5, Therefore I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do so as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, He distributed freely, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever." Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God by your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and your generosity in sharing with them with everyone. As they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So to be clear, this passage is not speaking about tithing. It's speaking of willfully and cheerfully giving a generous gift. I believe this embodies the heart of New Testament giving. And I also want to be clear that I'm not saying, nor is this passage saying, that if you give a $1,000 quote-unquote seed gift, which you may have heard from televangelists, that you will receive back $10,000 or some other crazy sum of money. And that's just not biblical. Okay. And so the point in all of this is that there is this perspective within the New Testament that says, no, you're no longer under a command to give 10%, okay? okay? But there is this sense of we are called to be willful, cheerful, generous givers okay? as believers. Why do we still adhere to the 10% still then? It, why, like, why is that? Why is that brought up so often? That's all I've ever heard. Yeah. So I understand in some way why pastors say 10% mm-hmm. because there's, there is this principle of giving of first fruits, which is always correlated with 10% throughout scripture. Okay. To be honest, I wish we would frame it differently. So what do you mean? I wish we would, I wish we would frame giving in a New Testament context of generous giving, okay. of joyful giving, of I'm not doing this because I'm made to do it. Mm-hmm. And and I do think there is something to say that, okay, so in, in the Old Testament world, 10% was commanded, mm-hmm. okay? So if I'm going to be generous, it, it, it may very likely look like more than 10%. Mm-hmm. But I do think we've got to get away from the sense of it is 10% as a mandate. Okay. That's what, by framing it differently, I would want to move away from the idea of 10% as a mandate because mm-hmm. I don't think that carries over into New Testament. Okay. You're not supposed to answer my questions before we get to the questions. I'm sorry. I'm you, just that good. You're not supposed to. <laughs> you're not supposed to take my entire childhood and flip it on its head, even though that's the whole point. Did, did I just mess everything up for you? Yeah, you did. Well, now my now I'm thinking like, well, is that true for other things hmm. about stuff that I've heard? Like, is this is this mandated or is this just like you should you should uh, not have sex before marriage freely? Yeah. And willingly. <laughs> right. Now, so, there's a, yeah, I mean, I think we'll do a whole other episode, hopefully, yeah, on I mean, sexual ethics. We'll right. We'll do a whole episode on that right. eventually. And on sexual ethics. But yeah, I, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I do think it's hard because here's what I think is what's happened is that as leaders, as pastors, if we don't understand clearly how covenants work within scripture, mm-hmm. okay. And what I mean by that is throughout Scripture, what you find is this movement of covenants that God makes with his people. Okay, so a 
a he the way God is framing the relationship with his people. Mm. And so we see covenants with Noah, we see covenants with Abraham, we see covenants with Moses, we see covenant with David, and we see a New Testament covenant. Mm. So you see this progression of covenants, and some of the covenants are universal. Okay, so they're so Abraham's covenant, the Noahic covenant, are universal covenants, right? When God promises that he's never going to flood the earth again, mm-hmm. okay? That's a universal covenant that is for all people in all places at all times, mm-hmm. okay? When God makes his promise to, to Abram, that's a universal covenant because mm-hmm. he's promising a seed that is coming and descendants that will be like the stars in the sky, Okay, so that's a, this universal promise that's going to continue on, in other words. What makes the covenant with Moses so unique is that it actually is structured to be just for a certain specific time period. Okay. And so when you get into the New Testament, it will speak of the Old Testament have no longer, or the Old Testament covenant, mm-hmm. no longer having a, a, a valid or it's no longer needed, put it that way, and okay. using Hebrew's language or the language from Galatians. Okay, like, like like that Old Testament covenant served like as a tutor, but now that Christ has come, we don't need that Old Testament covenant anymore. What it's referring to is the covenant made to Moses. It's referring to the Mosaic covenant. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when Christ comes, there is this reality that the Mosaic law crashes up against the cross, if you were, and the ceremonial laws are no longer needed. Mm-hmm. The, you know, so like when you read the Old Testament, because sometimes people will be like, well, what about the passages that says don't have piercings or don't get tattoos, right? And I'm like, well, that's Old Testament ceremonial law. That doesn't even apply anymore today. And so we cannot invoke that into New Testament covenant. Um and so ceremonial law, the civil law, crashes up against the cross and ends at the cross. And the moral law, so for example, the Ten Commandments, like we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we can say those pass through the cross because those are just moral commands of the Lord, and his and his moral nature never changes. Mm-hmm. Right? So no, he does not want us to to steal or to covet, right, or to murder. Mm-hmm. That ends or to the ceremonial, the civil end of the cross and the moral does pass through the cross in the sense of, yes, God is who he is and his moral nature has not changed. So therefore these moral imperatives that he puts in there, he's saying, this is how you love me. This is how you love others. And Mm -hmm. he's being descriptive of what his, what the way he wants to define the way we should love one another. Mm -hmm. Okay. And love him. And so, I think what I'm getting to is I think sometimes because pastors don't understand that that's the way covenants work through Scripture, they're piecing Old Testament Mosaic covenant with New Covenant and kind of intertwining it, mm-hmm. and they don't make very good delineate, very good distinctions between those two covenants. Okay, and that's why, unfortunately, you will hear a pastor speak about commanding the tithe okay when there's no sense to do that in new covenant i hope that helps that helps 
it, it makes me it makes me want to ask the question now. Like we talked last week about how they use the church structure. Is mm-hmm. that is that the same type of thing, or is that not a covenant? That was just a way they did something. Correct. Okay. Cool. If 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 what you've said so far is correct, mm-hmm. in that we should be or the the church should be asking for giving freely. Mm-hmm. So why do why does the church still command it or ask for it sternly because we need slash want your money? Like what? <laughs> what? Why is that happening when that's not the way it's supposed to happen? Right. Okay. So why is the church asking for money all the time? Yes. Is, is, is what you're asking. Yeah. All right. So first of all, I want to say that I do think that there are plenty of churches that do not overemphasize money. Okay. There's plenty of churches that don't, that do not overemphasize it. Okay? I mean, I, I, I know that I, have, right. I've been to a couple Okay. But <laughs> I know, but you're but you're making the generalization. Yeah, I'm generalizing. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I, for all those churches out there that are not overemphasizing it, I just want to acknowledge that they yes. exist okay. and acknowledge that they're doing it right. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, me too. And so <laughs> I don't know, Nate. I think you want to throw all of them under the bus. So um, you're with them. <laughs> you're one of them. Yeah. All right. So um, so I do think you know. So there's some churches, and they are taking up an offering each week, but they're not doing so inappropriately, right? right? They're right. just, here's our time of offering. It's not overemphasized. Mm-hmm. It's not made to be the center of the whole service. Right. Here's your opportunity to give. And hopefully they're making that connection with giving and worship. And we can even talk about that a little bit later. I, I do think there's a, there's a, there is an act of worship in, in our giving. Um, and, and I know some churches who barely make you know, mention of money at all. Okay. But to get to what you're speaking about, uh, you're, you're right. I am very aware of, especially churches that have prosperity preachers and they're always talking about money. What is it? So a, a prosperity teacher definition is someone is a pastor who is always talking about money, right? Making promises, that if you give, quote, they refer to it as seed money many times. Okay. So if you if you if you give quote unquote seed money, or you give your tithe, or you give your offering, then what you will get in return is more money or luxuries in this life. Okay. New cars, houses, beer bank accounts, whatever. Okay. Um, that you can use, and you can use this money for. However you want, for your own use, your own pleasure, okay? And unfortunately, I also know that these are the ones who seem to be featured most often on Christian TV shows, radio stations. Um, many of them have the larger, quote-unquote, mega churches, and so they're more well-known. They have a larger platform. Mm-hmm. And, and it's unfortunate because I... Do believe that prosperity preachers who preach what, what's often referred to as a health and wealth gospel that God wants you completely healthy and completely rich. Okay. 
that when they preach this health and wealth wealth gospel, to be honest with you, I'm not sure they're really any different than wolves in sheep clothing. Okay. And they borderline on heresy. Um, and I think... Those is fighting words. <laughs> I know. Okay. And I think some have completely gone off the ledge and are in heresy. Okay. And and so I'm... I mean, that's... <laughs> there's so this bothers you a this, lot. There's not much that bothers me more okay. than the prosperity gospel. Okay. Because I believe it's done so much harm, not just to the body of Christ, but to people who look at the church from the outside. Okay. It gives them reason to throw stones at the church, right? I mean, like, was it a few years ago? One of the mega past, you know, mega church pastors asked his congregation to quote unquote sacrificially give so that he could have his own private jet, mm-hmm. you know, and he said it was so that he could travel the world, you know, and preach the gospel. But man, come on, catch a commercial flight. That I was mean, a that was a clip going around, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Okay, and and and, and he was unapologetic about it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to scream. I mean, you know, I mean, like, it just drives me crazy. And because I feel like that just gives such a horrible, it's, a, it's such a horrible representation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what people are looking at. When they're looking at him or they're looking at these types of churches, they're wanting to, like, is this Jesus? Mm-hmm. Is this Christianity? Well, man, if so, I don't want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame them. I don't want to be a part of that either. And that's mm-hmm. what makes me mad. Okay. And that's why I'm like, so no, some of them are in full-blown heresy because they're just dis- they're not just distorting scriptures. They're, in my opinion, they're making God little more than a genie in a bottle. And they've reduced okay. him down to if I give God, you know, this much money, God's gonna give me all of this money in return. And I think often they are robbing, I'll just say robbing, they're mm-hmm. robbing from people who are good intended, good hearted, and want to see things done well in the kingdom and are willing to give. And unfortunately, these individuals are taking advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And it just, <laughs> it just, man, it just bothers me. So. So you got to rant today. Yeah, I got to rant today. Okay, cool. Thank you. I got to rant a couple episodes right, ago. I feel better now. You got to rant today. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let me can, let me just read Matthew 6. Can I do that? Yeah, go ahead. All right, let me read Matthew 6 because uh, I want to tie this in. You want to back that up, back your mm-hmm. rant up? Yeah, because yeah, I want to support my rant and then probably go on another small rant. Okay. So Matthew 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think that what happens is there is such this overemphasis 
from prosperity gospel preachers that own money, that it becomes the focus and it becomes their God. In other words, they're beginning to judge their Christian walk based upon income, cash. How much money they can get from you. Yeah. Okay. And and like, it it just, man, it grates all over me, bro. Mm. And because I just, again, I feel like it's such a distortion of the gospel. And I feel like it leads so many people astray. And I feel like it causes so many people to be disillusioned with church. And for those that were already skeptical, Mm. to just have further reason to be skeptical. And so, yeah, it it just, I I wish that there could just be a, a way to present money within a proper biblical framework Mm. without this insane overemphasis on it. Right. Like that's judging how well they're doing in Christianity by the car they drive Mm -hmm. or the house they live in or the vacation they just took, you know? Well, because people who aren't Christians have stuff like that. Absolutely. So (laughs) why why would that make, why would that make you any different? Yeah. I don't, uh, I mean, right. Right. I agree with you. Is that the logic or? Yeah. That's part of my, yeah, absolutely. That's part of the logic. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in other words, just because I have material things, does not mean that I'm walking right with God. Right, because that, yeah, that makes you, yeah, okay, rant over. I feel better. Okay, next question. (laughs) Why doesn't God have money? And (laughs) why does the church need my money? Because if God wanted your church to be open so bad, why can't he give you some money? (laughs) So what's the deal? Okay. Well, I'm gonna. Okay, I went on a rant this last one, so I'm gonna give the very simple answer here. Okay, no, you can go ahead. <laughs> why, why doesn't God have money? Oh my gosh! Okay. I mean, God made everything. He made right. paper. Right. So right. So okay. Okay. So let me just. I'm gonna put it this way. Okay. All right. So God has always chosen right to use His creation, His people for his purposes, and for his glory. And this includes funding the needs of his people in local church. So he's always used people to be able to do that. And so, in other words, like, how is a church going to receive money, for example, they need for a specific cause? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not literally just going to fall from the sky. God uses people. And... Again, it's one of the ways in which we learn to not allow money to have a, a stranglehold on us as believers. We learn to not allow money to have a part of our heart. Mm-hmm. And by learning that even all that we have been given is still the Lord's, that what we have is because of God. And so therefore, I can gladly return to him what honestly is already his, or at least I can say is he's already given me. And so this is the way God has always, you know, uh, worked and moved among his people. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, I mean, this dates back to the, to the earliest days. And so not just within Christianity, but you know, with, within old Testament scriptures as well. And so God just loves to use his people to do these things. What you're saying is that 
God does everything else through his people, so this is just one of the things that he does through his people. Yes. Okay. I'm not saying God actually does everything through people. Right, okay. But yes. Well, but yeah. He, like, but he does a lot of things. Because he just people. does miracles and makes the earth spin and all that other stuff, and we don't help out in that much. Right. Okay. Right. Based on your rant from earlier, uh-huh. I feel like you already answered this for me. Okay. But does God love rich people more than poor people? And if I give more money, am I going to get an apartment that's closer to Jesus's in heaven? <laughs> okay. No, I'm sorry, Nate. If you give more money, you're not going to get an apartment that's closer to okay. Jesus. Okay. So I just want to apologize to you ahead of he time. Probably, I realized this. when I finished stating that question that Jesus probably does not have an apartment in heaven. He's probably got the best place. <laughs> right. But but we won't we won't my apartment right. will be closer to his place. Right. R- right. Okay. Just want to clear that up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we'll make distinctions between heaven and the new creation in another episode. Okay. I don't know what that means. So yes we will. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So I'm just gonna, let me just read a couple of verses to you. Okay. okay. So in James chapter two, verse one, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, Love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So no, Nate, God does not love rich people more than the poor. Okay. So in this context, people who give more to the church are not favored more in heaven than people who have not given as much. Correct. Okay. Because cool. it's never about the amount that we give. It's 10%. Or it's about freely. It's about... It's about giving what I give. Yeah, it's, it's correct. It's about giving what we feel like... What we feel like we can give or what we... And sometimes we give beyond that. We give sacrificially as well. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we can minimize what is... Very easy for one person to give can be very hard for someone else to give. And so the Lord's not sitting there going, well, they gave a lot more. Mm. No, he's he's sitting there and he knows what's going on in our hearts in, our, in the midst of our giving. So it's an expression of my heart. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's an expression of your heart and your heart's devotion and your, and your heart's adoration unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. How much do hearts go for these days? <laughs> I'm not putting a price, man. Okay. Not putting a price. <laughs> All right. Let's go a different direction. Okay. What is the church doing with my money? 
Like when I give to mega church guy who wants a plane, I know where that's going. He's buying a plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I don't like that. You don't need a plane. There's planes that you can get a ticket for and don't need as much money. You don't need a plane. So, right. Where's my money going when I give to um, tiny local church down the road every day or every month or however much? Like what? Right. What are they doing with it? And all right, let me maybe I can share just what church should be using money okay. for. Okay, so they should be using money for. I'm gonna, I'm gonna list six items. I'm not okay. saying they're exhaustive, but so the first one is to help meet the needs of those within their church family. Okay, right. So if I'm a pastor of a church, I know that there is someone who is in need in the church family. Let's say they're going through a uh, health crisis, right? And they've got medical bills, mm. and they need help paying those medical bills. I want our church to be able to help them mm-hmm. cover the, that cost, all right? So it should be going to help the needs of those within the local church family. It should be going to help the needs of those within their community, okay? And so James chapter 1, verse 27 actually talks about how... Pure religion is caring for the widow and for the orphan. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be aware of the vulnerable and the needy around us and care and provide for them, not just those in our local church family, but also those just in our broader community. And then we also need to be mindful to help the needs of those around the world. It's interesting. You read through a lot of Paul's letters, and most people don't even realize that one of the purposes of him going from city to city to city is he's actually collecting an offering to take back to Jerusalem for the needy there. <laughs> and so he's going through these other towns, these areas to go back to Jerusalem with an offering. And so sometimes we'll be mindful that there are other areas in the world that need funds. Okay. Um, I'll give you a great example of, th- of this one in the midst of COVID when, when we were, hurting here in the States, some financially, because people were being laid off of their jobs. We were able, our church was able to help individuals that actually were were losing either percentages of income or all of income. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we were able to help them with that. And so we were able to help and care for our own church family. We then also did a lot of things for the broader community. And so we were able to help individuals at the hospitals and all kinds of things. It was really incredible, to be honest with you, to see the way the church family came together to help our community. Mm -hmm. Our food pantry was, people were coming through the food pantry every day, and we were having a hard time keeping it stocked at one point. And so we put out a plea to our church, and man, people started coming with groceries, and you know, and we're all of a sudden now we were able to help meet the needs of people who just needed food. And to top it all off, we've got some really dear, close relationships with people in third world countries Mm -hmm. and in two countries in in particular. And we were able, our church was able to take up offerings for for those two areas. And for one of the areas we were able to give, we actually helped cover the cost of their budget for them to run for the next year. And so that COVID, which was absolutely destroying them 
mm-hmm. financially because all of their individuals, for the most part, you know, are day laborers and those types of things, and could they weren't they had no jobs, they could not pay, and so the church was just decimated. Now we were able to cover their budget to help with you know feeding costs with um, a feeding ministry. We were able to do all kinds of things for for their church. And again, just so, you know, so their church could provide meals for their families. So we were doing this for, you know, a, a, you know, a country that's, you know, um, just being greatly impacted by COVID. And so I think when church is handling money right, it does these things. It helps those that are in need in the church family, in the community, in the world. But it also provides for those who are serving in the body of Christ. And so... Second um, Timothy five seventeen and eighteen speaks about that those that are leading and that are teaching the word of God are worthy of their wages, and so it is actually to provide for the ministries uh, or for the ministers who are serving in that church. I believe it's to provide for those who are facilitating the work of God locally and around the world. And then just the most basic thing in the world, the, the, the small church that is down the road, what is your money going to? More than likely, it's going to keep the lights on. Mm. You know, it's just paying the utility cost or, or building payments or rent. Um, I mean, these are just practical needs that the church has that have to be paid. Mm. And so I would hope these are the things that churches are emphasizing and prioritizing when they're handling money that's being given to them. So I guess part of that question was, why isn't everyone a volunteer that works at church? Yeah. So I feel like I know why. I just want to hear the answer. Let me just kind of put it in the most practical way I know how to to state it. Um, when, When one has to care and provide for his own family... Okay, work in the marketplace and also pastor. Mm-hmm. It does not leave much time for one's own family or the church family. Okay, and so it's you're kind of being torn, right? Because mm-hmm. if you have to work, you have to work. If that's how you're making your income, right? right. And so now you're trying to divide the time between mm-hmm. your own family and the church family, and both deserve the care and attention given to them including the study necessary to, you know, handle and teach scripture as well. I mean, because as pastors, I mean, one of the things that we're spending a lot of our time in during the week is preparing teachings and because you want to be able to do it well. So if possible, I believe it's ideal for pastors to be free to not have another job so that they can care for the church family while also having the time to care for their own family. And I understand that this is not possible in every area of the world. Mm. It's just simply not. But when it is possible, it's the ideal. Okay. In Acts chapter 18, just to kind of give you a scripture reference there, in verses 3 through 5, this is really clearly shown. Paul is a tent maker by trade. So Paul's working making tents. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, some ministry associates come to him and are able to relieve him from his duties from having to make tents because they come providing funds mm-hmm. so that Paul doesn't have to be 
working on the, you know, doing tents. And so Paul goes from being able to preach the word once a week, just on the Sabbath when he's not working, to now he's able to preach daily mm-hmm. and minister to people daily. And so I think that's the huge difference. Mm-hmm. It's just freeing pastors up to be able to care for the flock, tend to the flock, feed the flock with, you know, with the freedom to do so and also care for their own family. You said the other week that the that the church is isn't necessarily a, a building. Right. So I assume a lot of money slash not volunteer work goes into upkeeping of building. Sure. Based on what you've said so far and based on how life works. Right. So why is money going toward that? How does that help make people Christians and get into heaven? <laughs> like, okay. so what? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. There's nothing wrong with a building being clean and presentable, right? Right. I mean, I think we can agree okay. with that. I do believe we can go overboard with how we use the money. Okay. And so what I mean by that is that we can start using money for the building that really should be going to care for the church family or the community or the world. Like, I'm not sure we need all the lights, the, you know, the smoke machines, tens of thousands of dollars spent on sound equipment, the best of everything in a sanctuary, classrooms, bathrooms. I mean, I'm not saying we don't need bathrooms. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't need, you know, the best, you know, uh, fixtures and everything else that are in there. I mean, when I, when I see smoke machines... And I see smoke. I I think Jesus. That's what you think. That's what I think. Right. Immediately. Every time. Immediately. Every time. Right. You're a you're at a concert. Mm-hmm. You see smoke. And it's, lasers. <laughs> I think my favorite part of church is lasers. This is. I think this is the second time I've brought that up. Too. You, you, you have. You yeah. love the lasers. I love the lasers. <laughs> right. It, it really connects you with yeah. Jesus when you see lasers. Smoke with the lasers, lasers. in them. Right. Jesus. <laughs> Every time. Every time. <laughs> Well, then you may have a different take on what I'm about to say. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, I think that the church, especially in the West, has gone overboard with trying to be the coolest, best looking thing out there. Um, Which costs a lot of money. Costs a lot of money. And it saddens me because that's not, as we talked about before, it's like the yeah. church is supposed to be, right? Yeah. Okay, we have a building because that's where we meet and we gather it's fine for it to look, you know, presentable and clean and, you know, nice, but man, we don't have, we do not have to go overboard with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and I'm always mindful that some of this stuff can be relative, but I mean, I think, you know, like when you just look around, you're like, okay, that's extravagant. We don't need that. Um, and so we really are supposed to be, the people of God who are making a marked difference in the world for the kingdom. And I'm not sure spending money on all of those extravagant things is accomplishing that. This is the end of part one of the Why the Church Need My Money episode. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Rumble. And uh, this has been Nate Robinsoff and Joseph Tillman. We are on social media at when i heard this podcast on instagram and facebook and you can follow 
Joseph and I on our individual Instagrams. I'm at Nate Robinsoff and Joseph is at Rev Joe T. And we will see you all next time.